Welcome to the OCC Podcast. Whether you're listening to this at home, on the road, at work, or in the gym, we're so glad you decided to join us as we study God's Word together. We hope and pray that through this ministry, you will grow in your relationship with God as well as become a chair for disciple maker. But for now, sit back and let us help you see how the Bible applies to your life today. Well, good morning. It's good to see everyone here this morning. For those who don't know, my name is Andrew Smith. I'm the student ministries pastor here. Welcome. It's good to have you. It's such a joy to be with you all this morning as we jump into studying God's word together. Before we do, I have a little bit of a personal announcement I wanted to share with you guys. Malin, Hannah, and I will be welcoming a baby boy to our family. Little, little does Hannah know, we've been trying to tell her, and it kind of just goes right over her head, and she just wants a baba. So, um, but the, the comicalness of this all is that uh, we're due at the end of this April. So, and the other fun of that is that we didn't find out we were pregnant until 20 weeks. So, all kinds of fun, a story for another time. Uh, but yeah, so we are still wrapping our brain around some of this. We are very thankful for the blessing um, and excited for this little boy, but uh, definitely would appreciate your prayers as we wrap, brain, uh, wrap our brain around this and get prepared for the, his arrival at the end of April. Um, so, come in quickly, yes. Now this morning, we are continuing our series in the book of Acts called Moving Day. We've been looking at the start of the New Testament church and how God moved in and through the church's beginning. We have also seen how the Holy Spirit was given to believers and the church exploded around the Holy Spirit. Two weeks ago, Pastor James walked us through the healing of of the lame man at the temple gates. Then last week, we saw Peter's sermon to all those who had witnessed this incredible miracle. Now this week in chapter 4, we see the continued aftermath of the healing of the lame man. Once again, it's the Jewish lawmakers versus Jesus and his followers. Before we jump in, I have a question for you all. Has there ever been a time in your life when you were too nervous, too scared, or even compelled or encouraged by others to not speak of Jesus? Did you struggle with boldness at this point of time? Did you brush aside the nudge from the Holy Spirit to speak of Jesus? Now for me, I've struggled with this at times. For those who don't know, I went to college in downtown Chicago. Went to a Bible college there called Moody Bible Institute. I loved my time there and truly look forward to any opportunity I have to go back. But some of you may know this, Chicago can be a rough place. It's a big city with a lot of gangs, violence, and a massive homeless population. It's also an amazingly incredible city that my wife and I both love very much. Remember there being many times that I would be on a, a public bus or the, the public train system there, and I would see someone, specifically a homeless person, ranting and raving up and down the train car, loudly begging for money or just struggling with mental health. I'd feel the nudge from the Holy Spirit to go and talk with this person, sharing the gospel with them or possibly just buying a meal. I'd push aside the nudge from the Holy Spirit because I felt like it was unsafe. I also didn't want to be the one weird dude in the middle of the train car talking to this ranting, raving homeless person about Jesus. Honestly, I feel guilty at times that I didn't listen to the Holy Spirit's nudges more in my life. Now, while we need to be wise with safety, 
we as believers, are we willing to take the risk of embarrassment? Are we willing to speak with those that are the least of these? Are we willing to be bold when it would be easier to fade into the crowd? This morning, as we look at our passage, the main idea of our passage is this. Do we live in such a way that every aspect of our life flows from our relationship with Jesus? Let me say that one more time for you. Do we live in such a way that every aspect of our life flows from our relationship with Jesus? Let's jump into our passage and and, and dive into this a little more. Join me in Acts chapter four, starting in verse one. Acts chapter four will be up on the screen for you if you'd like to follow along that way. Starting in verse one. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed. The number of the men came to about 5,000. The next day, their, ruler, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, all who were the high priestly family. When they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you, to all the people of Israel, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that, re- that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved." And when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. when When they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all inhabitants of Jerusalem. We cannot deny it, but in order that it may spread no further along the, among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. When they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So there's a lot here. It's a lot to dive through. So let's, let's hang on. Starting in verse 1, kind of, kind of walk through the passage and explain what's happening here. As Peter and John are finishing up their, ser- their sermon from the end of chapter 3, they're interrupted. Luke writes that they're interrupted by the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees. This group of religious elites are coming from the Jewish temple, from the Jewish religious leadership, because of the commotion that was caused from the healing of this lame beggar, as well as from Peter's sermon. 
Peter and John have caused enough commotion at this point. The Jewish leadership must respond. I want to briefly explain who these three groups of people are so that we understand who shows up here. The priests mentioned here were those priests that were assigned to the current duties in the temple and most likely were at the temple for that evening's sacrifices. The captain of the temple was the second in command of the temple directly behind the chief high priest. The captain of the temple had a ton of responsibilities, including assisting the high priest during sacrifices, filling in when the high priest was absent, the head of the temple police, and being the high priest's advocate for such instances as we see here in Acts 4. Finally, we see the Sadducees. They were a combination of, of religious elites that came together and were a part of the larger religious system called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a combination of several different groups of people, including the Pharisees and the Sadducees. What is key to understand about the Sadducees is that they did not believe in any sort of resurrection of the dead. They believed that the oral tradition of passing along the law by word of mouth was wrong and instead held fast to the written law, the Torah, the law of Moses, or the first five books of our Bible. They also did not believe in any concepts of demons, angels, or immorality. When we look at verse 2, as Luke writes that this arresting group shows up and interrupts Peter and John, it is because they are annoyed at their teaching and proclamation of Jesus, as well as their belief that Jesus was raised from the dead. We must see that the Sadducees were the driving force behind this arrest. They had massive issues with Jesus and were very much a part of the push to kill him. And now they're taking on his disciples as they proclaim Jesus' messiahship, resurrection from the dead, salvation that would include life after the physical death for believers, angels, demons, and the list goes on. What Jesus stood for and what Peter and John are preaching about goes against the very core of the entire Jewish religious system, but specifically the Sadducees. They're arresting and trying to silence Peter and John to stop the uprising that is completely contrary to the very foundation of their beliefs. Not only are Peter and John preaching something that is completely against the entire Jewish religious system, but they're doing it inside of the Jewish temple. This would be like going to a Seahawks game, getting on the field, on a mic, on the jumbotron, and rooting for another team. It's not going to go well. Now, verses 3 and 4, we see that this arresting party takes Peter and John. They arrest them, put them in jail for the night. This is because it was already evening, and the Jewish religious leadership, the Sanhedrin, would not meet at night. As well as the arresting party was hoping that a night in jail would sober them up to the severity of their situation, stopping them from any desire to continue preaching. After Peter and John are led away, Luke tells us that those who had witnessed the miracle and listened to Peter's sermon, many of them believed and numbered about 5,000. Once again, we see this idea of the moving day. We see the Holy Spirit is moving and doing radical things in the hearts of those who believe. Looking back at verse 5, we see the next morning Peter and John are led in front of the rulers, the elders, and the scribes. Now these three groups of people mentioned here are, are what would make up the entire Jewish religious government, Sanhedrin. Now quickly, so we can make this connection, the rulers mentioned here would be the chief high priest, the top authority of the Sanhedrin. The next would be the elders, 
They would be the lay leaders of the community, commonly referred to as the Sadducees, the same ones that just arrested um, Peter and John two verses before. Now, the scribes mentioned here would be drawn from the class of the lawyers and be referred to as the Pharisees. In addition to these three groups, Luke mentions that there were other key men in attendance. The, uh, the Tyndale, uh, Tyndale commentary explains who these men are. Listen as, as, it, as it says this. Luke mentions certain important priests who were present. Annas, who had been high priest in 86 to 15, but had been deposed by Rome, succeeded by his various family members, including his son-in-law Caiaphas, another one that we just saw here. Despite his deposition, Annas was still very much had a great influence on the Jewish religious leadership. We also see John, who is other, pretty much unknown, unless this is a variant of Jonathan, another son of Annas, who was high priest in AD 37. The last one, Alexander, is unknown. We're not sure his connection. What we do know is the other members of the high priestly family had held very much of influential positions within the Sanhedrin still. So in addition to these three groups of the Sanhedrin in attendance for this hearing, similarly, similarly excuse me, to the trial of Jesus, we see former high priests who are brought in as well. Stage is set and the trial begins in verse 7. We see that Peter and John are brought before all these men. And the Sanhedrin asks them very directly, not beating around the bush at all here, by what power and by what name did you do this? They're asking, by what power and name did you heal this man and are speaking of the resurrection? Remember, the resurrection would have directly violated the Sadducees' beliefs. They're giving Peter and John a chance to defend themselves and explain the power behind the miracle and who they are preaching about here. Starting in verse 8, Peter gives an answer in another sermon. They've asked by whose power and name, and Peter clearly tells them it is by the name and power of Jesus Christ that they healed this man. In the beginning of verse 8, we see that Luke tells the reader that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. This is not meaning that Peter wasn't filled with the Holy Spirit before this moment. Instead, this was a special powering from the Holy Spirit for the purpose of boldly proclaiming to the Sanhedrin. What we see here is a direct fulfillment of Jesus in Luke 12, 8 through 12. It says this. You can look up the screen. Jesus says to his disciples this, And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemies against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. The Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Peter and John are receiving that special teaching from the Holy Spirit here on what they are to say as they're being questioned by the Sanhedrin. Peter launches into this sermon, and within this sermon, we see four key points. You'll see them up on the screen. They are, firstly, Peter tells the Sanhedrin that they healed this man and are preaching in the name of Jesus. Secondly, he, he identifies who Jesus is. Thirdly, excuse me, I'll fix this here, he he condemns the council for rejecting and killing Jesus. 
Fourthly, he preaches the gospel clearly to the council. A couple key parts of this sermon so we can catch them. Peter clearly calls out the Sanhedrin for the ones that rejected and killed Jesus in verse 10. Peter reminds them that it is Jesus' name they speak, heal, and believe in the resurrection of the dead. Verse 11, we see that Peter continues to remind the council of their sin by looking back at Psalm 118.22 as he speaks of Christ being the cornerstone that the builders rejected. Here Peter is taking an Old Testament passage that they would have known and explaining how it has been fulfilled in Jesus. Sanhedrin is guilty of killing Jesus because they are the builders of the nation of Israel. They are the religious authority. They, They rejected the cornerstone the very foundation and salvation of Israel and all mankind. They rejected him, wrongly accused him, and killed him. Remember, the idea of cornerstone is that of the the very foundation that a house was built on. So Jesus was the rock, the foundation which God's people are built on, and the Sanhedrin killed him. Peter wraps up his sermon in verse 12 by an incredibly clear explanation of the gospel, as we mentioned earlier. Peter tells those who are listening that salvation is not found in anyone except through the cornerstone, the rock, Jesus whom the Sanhedrin killed. Let's pause for a second. This this is the gospel. We are saved through Jesus alone. It is his death, his blood, his sacrifice that saved us. There's nothing that we could do that saves us. Salvation is, the only, is only found in believing in Jesus as our Savior and that he was raised from the dead. But sadly, I think so often believers don't operate with that as their foundation. They believe it here, but they don't live it out. Believers often begin to operate in a mindset that they are saved through their good works. Let me explain this. Let me give an example. A believer that lives their life in a way that they believe if they do good works, they will gain God's good graces or earn God's favor. Or if a believer sins, now they've lost God's favor. That it becomes up to our actions on whether or not we feel like God is good with us right now. This is not the gospel, and Peter has made that clear. We do good works not to earn God's favor or to save ourselves from our sins. We do good works to love God, serve him, to honor him, and to point others to him. Friends, do we we find that in our life that we live in such a way that we are trying to earn God's salvation or earn his favor? Do we go through life wondering if we have God's favor today because of what we have done or have not done? It becomes this question that, that, Sadly, I think believers wrestle with, am I good with God today? Am I not good with God today? If we have called upon the name of the Lord and are saved, we have God's salvation. We have his favor. Now we have to live our life confidently on the cornerstone of the salvation that we received from Jesus. We have to live our life in such a way that we love God, serve him, because it is an outpouring of our relationship with Jesus, not trying to earn his favor. Let's jump back into our text here and continue. Verse 13, after Peter's done preaching, the Sanhedrin is amazed at Peter's boldness, Peter and John's boldness. Luke tells us they were amazed because they were uneducated common men. They were nobodies. But Peter and John were followers of Jesus, and the council knew that. Luke tells us they knew that Peter and John had been with Jesus. Peter and John had made no secret that they had been with him. 
Let's remember, remember that Peter has clearly stated already that it is by Jesus' power they did this miracle and they are preaching about the resurrection. They're not hiding the fact that they belong to Jesus. Friends, do we hide the fact that we belong to Jesus? Are we open and honest about whose we are? Are we open and honest about, with everyone we come across, about what we believe, why we believe it, and what Jesus has done in our life? Are we open and honest by whose power and name we live our life? We'll talk about that more here in a second, but let's keep going. Verse 14, the Sanhedrin not only is amazed by the boldness of Peter and John, as well as that they know that they aligned with Jesus, but standing right in front of them in support of Peter and John is the lame beggar that was healed the day before. There's no question of the miracle that was done. There's no question that this man was healed. The council cannot dispute that. He's standing directly in front of them, not out on his mat begging any longer. The healed man is a known sign of the power of Jesus. Peter and John have made that clear already. Verses 15 through 18, the council sends Peter and John out of the meeting so they can discuss their decision and punishment for these men. As they discuss, they're at a loss. They have no charge that they can lay upon Peter and John. As well as, at this point, because the healing and preaching, Peter and John were popular with the people, and the Sanhedrin didn't want another uprising. They felt the only thing they could do was threaten Peter and John to speak no more in this name. Peter and John respond in verses 19 through 20 by telling the court that the court can decide if it is right for Peter and John to listen to the court or obey God. This response from Peter and John mirrors that of the Greek philosopher Socrates before his accusers moments before he was sentenced to death. Socrates made it clear that he was going to obey God rather than the court. And so does Peter and John in verse 20. With a massive and courageous statement that they cannot but speak of what they've seen and heard. This idea of that they cannot but speak of Jesus. They are meaning that it is impossible for them not to speak of Jesus. It would be impossible for them not to, to do miracles in the name of Jesus. It would be impossible for them not to defend the name by which they're saved, Jesus. They cannot but share with all about Jesus and the resurrection of the dead. They cannot but speak of the salvation that Jesus offers for all those who believe. They're telling the court, we cannot obey you because we must obey God. We cannot obey you because we must speak of Jesus. This is defiance of authority because the court was trying to force Peter and John to utterly disobey their Savior. Peter and John knew it was wrong before God to be silent. They knew it was wrong to obey the Jewish religious authority because they were commanding them to do something that was against Jesus. Now the question arises for us as believers. When can we as believers defy the worldly authorities in our life? Now, this is a really tough question because we know Romans 13, 1 through 7, as well as Jesus with the taxes given to Caesar, make it clear that we are to respect and obey the governmental authorities over us. Paul writes in Romans 13, 1 through 7 this. You can look up the screen as I read this. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a tear to good conduct, but to bad. 
Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? And do what is good, and you will, re- and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do good, I'm sorry, if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. The authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to to who respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. We are to willingly place ourselves under the authority of the government, not to fight them. Tyndale Commentary explains this a little farther. It says this, I shall obey God rather than you. The statement can be seen as an affirmation of the freedom of the individual's conscience over against the state. So in a sense it is. The individual claims the freedom to obey what he believes to be the command of God. But the important point is that it is the higher obedience due to God which is at issue. And this obedience stands above the commands of any religious or political system. The problem was, of course, that the Jewish court would have liked to think that they were speaking, that they were both, and they were speaking with the voice of God. Peter reminded that it was a human institution. There could be no doubt that God must be obeyed rather than men. The apostles have been called to be witnesses to Jesus Christ, and they were duty-bound to continue their witness. It's not about whether or not we agree with the politics of the government. It's not about whether or not we like those who are in government. It's all about obeying God and placing him as our supreme authority. We obey and submit ourselves to the government that God has placed in authority only until the government is forcing us to do something that is in direct disobedience to God. But we as believers need to be very careful to not cry defiance to the government for every little thing the government says or does that we don't agree with. Just because they're doing something or saying something that we don't like or agree with or even doing something that is wrong doesn't always mean that it fits the criteria for direct disobedience of the government before God. We as believers must only defy the government when, like we see here in Acts, the government is giving a direct command to us that is forcing us to choose between God and them. Back in, in our text as we finish up, verse 21 and 22 conclude our passage with explaining that the court further threatened Peter and John and then released them, partially because the man that was healed was more than 40 years old. This final statement is more of a statement that the, that the council was taking the miracle of this man as what it was at face value. An incredible miracle to a man who had been lame for 40 years, and thus they didn't feel like they could punish Peter and John for a genuine miracle. So let's apply this to our lives. How does this connect with us? If you look at your sermon handouts, you will see three application questions. We've asked these questions already, but let's dissect them a little further. First question is this. Do others know that we are with Jesus? The idea comes... From our, from our passage in verse 13, where the Sanhedrin were amazed at the boldness of Peter and John. Luke tells us the Sanhedrin had known they were with Jesus. When I read this verse, I'm immediately drawn to the idea and the question, do others 
know that I'm with Jesus? Do others know that Jesus is my Lord and Savior, the cornerstone of my life, the reason that I breathe, live, and get up every morning? Do I make the fact that I am of Jesus a common knowledge part of my life? Or do I only make it known when I feel comfortable or when I'm around other believers? Now, please hear me. I'm not saying that every believer needs to wear clothing that's plastered with Jesus all across it or cover your car with fish bumper stickers. If you choose to do that, praise God, more power to you. But what I am saying and encouraging us as believers is to live in such a way that it's obvious that we believe and are a follower of Jesus. I find it comical when I go somewhere and someone asks me what I do for a living. It's always interesting to hear people's responses or how quickly their vocabulary changes when I say I'm a pastor. But God puts me in these situations where I have an opportunity to identify and stand with Jesus. He puts me in these situations where people ask me why I became a pastor why I believe in Jesus, why I got a degree in ministry. These situations are my time to stand for him and give an account of why I believe what I believe. Friends, does God place you in those kind of situations? And do you take full advantage of them? Or do you let them go by and miss the opportunity to stand with Jesus and be recognized with him? Second question for us. Do we speak of Jesus? This question comes from our verse from verse 20 of our passage, where Peter and John refuse to obey the Sanhedrin because they cannot but speak of Jesus. Friends, is your life grounded on the foundation of the fact that you cannot but speak of Jesus in every aspect of your life? And what you've seen, heard, and experienced of Jesus, what drives your life? Is speaking of Jesus what drives your conversations with others? So what drives the way you handle yourself at work, at school? And the way you treat your spouse, your kids, your family, grounded on the truth of the grace and forgiveness that Jesus has given you. Think about this. How would you treat others differently if every interaction you had was an outpouring of the love, grace, and forgiveness you've experienced and received from Jesus? So you treated others with the same love, grace, and forgiveness that you've received. Think about this as well. What if you interacted with the world, those who don't know Jesus, those who without Jesus' salvation in their life would spend eternity separated from God? With that mindset that you cannot but speak of Jesus, that you are overjoyed to have Jesus come flowing out of your mouth, your life, your interactions with all that you come across. I have a story for you. There was a barber that thought that he should share his faith with his customers more than he'd been doing lately. So the next morning when the sun came up and the barber got up out of bed, he said, today I'm going to witness to the first man that walks through my door. Soon after he opened his shop, the first man came in and said, hey, I want to shave. Barber said, sure, sit in the chair. I'll be with you in a moment. Barber went, went back in the back and prayed a quick, desperate prayer saying, God, the first customer came in. I'm going to witness to him right now. Give me the wisdom to know just the right thing to say to him. Amen. And quickly, the barber came out with his razor knife in one hand and a Bible in the other while saying, good morning, sir. I have a question God wants me to ask you. Are you ready to die? (laughs) Now, maybe this isn't the greatest method of evangelism or maybe the, the, the greatest question, but the heart of the barber is right on. He knew he needed to share with his customers the hope that is found in Jesus. Friends, are you willing to take the risk of embarrassment or rejection because you want to know, you want others to know the same hope, grace, and forgiveness and salvation that you found in Jesus? 
You don't have to be a pastor or a professional evangelist or even have the, the perfe- perfect gospel message down in your back pocket to share with others. God just calls us to speak of him. As Peter says, we are called to live in such a way that we cannot but speak of Jesus. Final application question this morning is this. Are we willing to be identified with Jesus when it isn't easy? Final, final question comes from the final seven verses of our passage where the Sanhedrin repeatedly threatens Peter and John to not speak of Jesus. It would have been easier for them to just comply. This wasn't an easy situation for Peter and John. They'd spent a night in jail. They were questioned and threatened by the top religious authority of the day. The same authority that compelled Rome to crucify Jesus. We know from the end of the story, life didn't get any easier for any of these disciples. For most of them, they were killed for standing with Jesus. But they chose to obey God more than men. They chose to to live by the very statement that Peter said, we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. Friends, the chances that we as believers here in the States today experience anything close to what the disciples and the early church experienced as the Holy Spirit moved is low. But what, what ha- it happens to believers all around the world. Here in the States, we'll probably more experience the pushback that comes from the world hating Jesus and thus hating us. We'll experience more the need to stand with Jesus as the world pushes back more and more for believers to be silent. Are we willing to stand for Jesus even when it would be easier to be silent? Will we speak of him when it would be easier not to? Will we identify with him even if it could mean that we are ridiculed, harassed, or told to be silent? Or maybe will we be bold for him when life hurts, when life spirals out of control, when we lose a loved one, when injuries have stolen our joy and it's easier to be angry at God than praise him? Will we speak of him in the good times than the bad? I look at this passage and I'm immediately drawn to the idea that, that what we are given from Jesus, the hope, the grace, the mercy that we are given, it should light a fire under us as believers. It should be a joy. It should be this amazing passion that we know that we have what others need to know, that we have inside of us the very hope, the very joy, the very salvation, and then we have the opportunity to share with all. It should be a joy to us. It should get us up every morning. It should drive us forward to speak with others. It should make us want to live in a way that we cannot but speak what we've seen and heard. That it, it has to come out. It has to be what comes out of our mouth and our life because he's changed us and we want others to know the same. It should be this incredible joy. We've seen in this passage that Peter and John were bold for Jesus in the midst of a situation that wasn't easy, but they gladly aligned with him. They refused to be silenced and spoke of their Savior. Is this a joy to you? Is this the fire that that is lit under you and you want to go and have others know? Are you bold for him? Do you stand fast, ready to speak of him because you cannot but speak of him? Will you do the same in your life? Can we as believers not but speak of Jesus? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you. We want to speak of you. Your salvation that we have 
We want others to know. We want to be bold. We want to be excited. We want to have joy. We want to be driven to the idea that others need to know what you've given us. Help us to be bold. Help us to to live on this truth. Help us to live in such a way that our life is grounded on the idea that we cannot but speak of you. We love you and we thank you. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. If you would like to give to our ministry, please check out our website at lewistonocc.org. And don't forget to like, follow, and subscribe to this podcast, as well as our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram, so you're always up to date with what's going on here at Orchards Community Church. Take care, and God bless.